As we move forward, we're starting a brand new series this week. It's entitled, What is Love? We're going to take three weeks. It's going to end on Easter, and we're going to attempt to answer this question, what is love? I think we could all probably come to some sort of um, agreement on the fact that we, we have a desire within us to know what love is, right? There's that old song, I want to know what love is, right? No, hey, I'm not a singer, but we all know that song, right? There's some truth to that. I think that's in the 80s, I don't know. But anyway, I like it. We want to know what it is. We, we have a desire to, to know it, not just intellectually, right? We, we don't just want to know a definition of love. We want to know it by experience. We want to know it by, by emotion. We want to, because I, I think that we all have a love-shaped size hole in our heart, right? We all have this desire, like we said, to know what it is. We have a desire to love and to be loved, and we, we just look. For any way possible in life to fulfill that. I think in some ways our lives are defined by the pursuit of knowing what love is. Of, of understanding it, of feeling it. And we, we, there's many different avenues in which we can pursue it, right? We can pursue it through stuff. We can pursue it through a job. We can pursue it through a relationship. We can pursue it in a lot of different ways. And, and the fact is, is we're on the receiving end of cultural and societal messages all day long trying to dictate to us what love is right? And how if we want to experience it, then we need to do this or have this or be this or be with that kind of person or give a part of ourselves away. I mean, we, we are stuck in the middle between what culture and society says it is and over here what, what God would define it to be. So what I'm, I'm asking us to do over the next three weeks is not so much forget about what we think love is, but to keep it in a category where you can refer back to it with what we're going to take a look at. Because we're going to attempt to define love by what God says, which I believe is the best way to do it in the first place. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is a very familiar passage of Scripture uh, for a lot of people. And maybe for some of you, it's not super familiar. We call it the love chapter in church, right? In Christianity, it's the love chapter. We take this chapter and we put it on our walls and nice posters with beautiful calligraphy. We read it at weddings. We read it at marriage counseling, and I'm not trying to belittle it, I'm just saying it's a very popular passage of Scripture. It's, and in my opinion, it's not just popular and it's not just poetic, but it is the best definition of love, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature, throughout all history. No, no one besides God, and using Paul in this moment, did a better job of really writing to us and describing what love is. So if you would, go with me to... 1 Corinthians, we're going to start chapter 12, verse 31, and then read verses 1 through 3 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the last verse of that chapter, Paul says this, But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. In my Bible, it has the subheading as, Love is the greatest. That if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but did not love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. And if I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Would you bow your heads as we pray one more time? Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for the opportunity to be here. And I just ask you to help us see what love really is, to understand it and know it in the way that you define it, because anything that you define and do for us will ultimately fulfill us. 
Holy Spirit, just open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive from you today and help me to speak this message quickly and applicably to everyone's life. And everybody said, amen. Before we jump in here and and attempt to kind of dissect what Paul is is writing about, I think it's important for us to get an understanding of, of, of the history and the context behind what Paul is writing. Paul's writing a letter to the church in a city called Corinth. Corinth is located in southern Greece, and in fact, in this time that he wrote it, it was the most influential and prominent city in all of southern Greece. Paul went there to start a church. He spent about 18 months there starting a church at Corinth, and now he's writing back to them after he's moved on because he's heard some stuff that's going on. Corinth is a prominent city because it was located in between two major trade routes in Greece kind of bridging Europe and Asia in some ways. There was a center of culture, very diverse racially, a center of religions. They worshipped Greek gods. They worshipped Egyptian gods. They worshipped gods from other religions. It was very, very what we would call today, pluralistic. Just very open. They, They experienced a lot of wealth and luxury and prosperity. There were a lot of traveling salesmen and merchants and sailors and just a, a pretty much a would be kind of like some cities that we would think of today in the U.S. that experienced that kind of, that kind of level of prominence. But at, at the same time, with all that they had experienced, you know, the prosperity and everything, they had become synonymous in the known region with filth. It was immoral filth, not physical filth. To go to Corinth, it was said that there's nary a man who could afford a trip to Corinth because he would lose a lot more than just his pocketbook. They would say, if you had become Corinthianized in that day, you would have become uh, immoralized, or for, better, for lack of better words, you would have been made open or known to the pleasures the world had to offer. To be called a Corinthian gal would insinuate that you were loose or a prostitute. And I loved what one historian or commentator said about Corinth and its immorality. He said, the reason... It's very likely that the reason Paul went to Corinth or was so drawn to Corinth was because of its stark immorality. That's why he went. He went to one of the darkest cities in all of the world at the time, the known world, because he was drawn to it to take the message of the gospel, this message of hope and transformation and forgiveness and freedom to the most immoral city that he could find. Which I think about, I think that's really amazing, but at the same time, it kind of challenges our Christian mindset, doesn't it? Because we're like trying to get away from the world, right? We're, we're at times, we're trying to build ourselves Christian communities where we shut ourselves off from the world because we're just so, you know, upset about how bad the world is. And here Paul is taking the message of the gospel to the most immoral place he can find. Why? Because that's its only hope. That's what the gospel does. It runs to the darkness, not away from the darkness. It's the love that he's talking about that he goes there. He spent more time in Corinth than he did any other city starting this church. It's not the ideal place that we tend to think of. So after he started it and, and it's begun to grow, and there's, now there's issues, and he's writing to them addressing some issues. And it's pretty clear as you read Corinthians... You begin to get an understanding of what Paul is addressing. It's very clear. He's, direct, he's addressing division in the church. People are mad and upset and causing strife and trying to tear down. He's addressing people that are suing one another because they're mad. Brothers suing brothers. Friends suing friends. It's crazy. 
Then he gets into this. He starts addressing sexual morality in the church. He's addressing people that are just sleeping with one another. He's addressing sons that are sleeping with their, their father's wives. He's addressing homosexuality. He, he's addressing a lot of stuff. This isn't cultural, right? He's not addressing the world. He's addressing the church. And early on, he makes a statement to them. He lists all these things, and he says, look, this is what you once were. These, that, that group of people will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. But remember, they're doing those things. But he says, this is what you once were. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. He said, you have been made holy. You have been made right with God, is what my translation says. Because you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That's not who you are anymore. I mean, I would think he's going to just rail on them, right? Like he's just going to tell them how horrible they are, how they're going to hell, how they're no good for nothing. But he says, hey, he calls it out. But then he says, this is not who you are. You have been set apart and you have been made right with God, not because of what you do or what you will do or what you've done, but because of the finished work of Jesus. This is what he's telling them. I don't know about you, but this is challenging for me as I read this. And he moves on from that and we get to where we are, chapter 13, and Paul is now going to try and attempt to define for them what love is. And it's really ironic, and it's important to realize that in the city of Corinth, atop of the hill, the highest point of the city, of a Greek city, was called an Acropolis. And on the Acropolis stood a citadel, which was a defense point for all the city. And up there on the highest point of that citadel and that mountain was a temple to the goddess of Af- goddess Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love. She had estimated a thousand temple prostitutes who would come down the mountain every night and evangelize the city, evangelize the men. She would sleep. They would sleep with all of the merchants and the sailors and the salesmen and the men. And they, they did an archaeological dig of this city, and they found there was this building. And then atop of the building were all of these rooms, which they assume is how it was where the evangelization would take place, for lack of better words. So what's the point here? The point is, is we have to understand this Corinthian mindset regarding love. For them, they had always seen at the highest point of their city, the temple of Aphrodite, they had elevated love to such a high place in their society. But it was not the kind of love that Paul was going to tell them about. It was a love rooted in sexuality. It was very erotic. It was very sensual. It was very transactional, so to speak, right? It was very loose. These prostitutes, it was a form of worship for them to have sex with whomever, whenever, however. So this is what they think about love. Yes, they have encountered the love of God, but still the influence of culture and society is, I believe, weighing heavy in their mindset. Chapter 13, obviously, is between chapters 12 and 14. Right? But it's important to know what chapter 12 says and what chapter 14 says. Chapter 14, Paul is talking to them about gifts in the church, a gift that we experienced this morning, the gift of prophecy. He's talking to them about that. Chapter 14, he's talking to them about gifts too. So he just seemingly pauses in the middle of that. I'm going to talk about love all of a sudden. It seems like a departure. It seems very, like in some ways it doesn't fit. But under, I believe, the influence of the Holy Spirit, Paul seems to pause. All right, I've talked about all these gifts. They're good. They serve their purpose. They're wonderful. But I want to show you the best way to live. Really, the last part of verse 31 should really be the first verse of chapter 13. 
I want to show you a better way to live. And that's where we get our subheading, love is the greatest. Maybe yours says love is the best. Maybe yours says love conquers all. And then he goes into this. He's been talking about gifts. Now he's going to talk about love. It seems to me what Paul would do is he would just begin to tell what love is, right? I'm going to show you. So I'm thinking, all right, show me what love is. But he begins with if statements. Verses 1, 2, and 3 are if-then statements, right? They're conditional. And he makes this, if I, if I. He says, if I could speak in the tongues of angels and men. For the Corinthian people, they so valued speaking in other languages, it was huge to them. But I didn't have love. He says, I would be a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And then he says, if I, if I had the gift of prophecy, if I knew all the secrets about God, if I knew everything and I could tell you, and I had faith that could move mountains, but I didn't have love, I, I would be nothing. He says, and, and if I would, would give everything that I have, I would give it all away for the purpose of being generous. And then not only give every material thing I have away, but I give my life away, but I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. That's kind of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Like, Paul, I thought you were going to tell me what love is. I didn't know you were going to make an indictment about me. And I love the way he does it. He doesn't say, if you. He says, if I. Which makes it more palatable for them to hear. So what's going on? Why is he addressing this before he gets to chapter, verse 4, which we all know what that is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And we'll talk about that next week. See, what was happening is the Corinthian people... The Christians, they had begun to value the gifts that God could give them more than God himself. How many of you have little kids? Nieces, nephews, kids? Yeah. You ever given them a gift, and the moment you give them a gift, the attention is drawn from you to the gift, right? And then they rip open the gift, they pull it out of the box, and they're more infatuated with the box than the toy. And then they look up and they say, where's the next one, right? And then where's the next one? What happens is, is they, they put more emphasis on the gift than they do you. Maybe not consciously, but that's kind of what happens. Now, we're okay with that with kids because we expect it. But have you ever given a gift to somebody that you really, you know, you have a good relationship with, and then you give them the gift, and it's as if you don't, you're not even there anymore? And they're more enamored with the gifts you can give them with, than they themselves? That's what's happening with the Corinthian people. They are, they are, they are diluting love and devaluing the love of God by placing a greater emphasis on the gifts or the benefits that God will give them. Does that make sense? I don't know if they were doing it intentionally. I don't know if they consciously made that statement, but that's what they were doing. They were using these gifts that were meant to, to enhance the entire group. They were of a corporate benefit. They were gifts that were meant to make God the hero, God the focal point, and not themselves. That's why he says, if I could speak in the tongues of angels and men, but I didn't have love, I would be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. How many of you have ever heard someone play a solo on the cymbals? None. It would be annoying, right? It would be like if, the, if our drummer here each week just played the cymbals really too loud, and maybe some of you think that. You know, you hear the cymbals, and it's like, I can't hear anything else but the cymbal, and it's... And it's not enjoyable for me. I can't hear the piano. I can't hear the guitar. I can't hear the singers. I can't hear anything. And you hear the cymbals. That's because a cymbal was never meant to be a solo instrument. Right? Someone doesn't sing along while playing the cymbals. It just doesn't work. It was never meant to be that way. And so what's Paul saying? 
Paul's saying if you use something that was meant to be corporate, something that was meant to elevate everyone else around you and point them to God, and you're using it for your own benefit, and you don't even love the people that you're engaging, you are annoying. You are repelling them rather than being magnetic. It's as if you've taken the magnets, flipped themselves around, and try to put them together, and what happens? Boom, they pop away. Little kids can't figure it out. Sometimes we can't either. But that's what he's saying. You, you, become, you become a repellent versus being attractive. You didn't, you didn't love them. And then he, he uses other gifts. Because not only do you become repelling, you become nothing. You become less of what you are. And you don't gain anything. And then you scratch your head and you think, Paul, I thought you were telling me what love is. Not about these gifts. Paul is building this case for them to show them that the love of God in every case is more important than the benefits that God could give them. That the gifts that God gives us, you know, the gift of of, of whatever, talents that we have, was never meant for the sole purpose of us. That we were never meant to be a solo instrument. We are meant to be part of a great symphony, which is the church. And that any time with God, and this even works in our own relationships, that we begin to value the benefits of something more than the one who is providing the benefits, we have a bankrupt sense of love. And our relationships will then be bankrupt. Is there anybody that you know that you have a relationship with that you think they're just in it for what they can get out of it? You ever feel that way about a salesman? You ever feel like they're just being nice to you because they want to make a profit? You ever feel that way? You know, I used to sell appliances, and I used to feel that way myself. It was one of the most morally challenging jobs. Like, I got to be nice, but then I got to fight the struggle of being nice, but I also am not making an hourly wage, and if I don't sell this dishwasher, I don't pay my bills, and I don't eat. You know what I mean? So there's that feeling. It was this mutual relationship. They wanted to get what they wanted out of it. I wanted to get what I wanted out of it. And I always went home and I took a shower, not because I was sweaty. I just felt like I wasn't being real. I'm not saying all salesmen are immoral, so don't take that. But I'm just saying for me it was a challenge, and it's that, that same way. I think we all have been, we've all struggled sometime with some relationship. We were looking to get something out of it versus just looking to be in a relationship. Sometimes we do that because we're struggling with our definition of what love is, right? We're struggling to fill that void that we have on the inside of us. And we're proceeding from a faulty foundation of love. If a a product is made and the, the interior of that product is compromised, the product will be defective, right? It all begins in how it's put together. And if we have a wrong definition of love or just a definition of love that's been overly influenced by society and culture, then we have a a, a defective product or a defective process by which we are giving love and receiving love. Does that make sense? We're looking for the benefits of love. For the Corinthian people, they, I believe, had been so influenced by the temple on the hill that for them, love had become nothing more than just a transaction, right? Love was just very erotic, very sensual, very fleeting, very momentary. They come down the hill, 
We do our thing and they go back up the hill. And it's just the same process over and over again. So this fight and this struggle to see what love really is. You know, we, they, they'd encountered God's love, but to carry that all the way through, I believe, required Paul writing to them and redefining, reaffirming, just painting the picture for them again. Hey, love is not what you think it is. Love is not just a pursuit of someone or something. Love is not a, a destination, right? Love is not a, an accomplishment or an achievement. I don't know about you, but I thrive off accomplishment and achievement. I mean, I've I got a goal. I'm going to go for that goal, and either you're with me or you're not. And if you're not and you're in front of me, you better watch out because I might run you over. Anybody else like that? Two. Okay, good. I'm glad I, I, feel, I feel welcome in the company of two. I, I, I think on some level we all struggle with the idea of, of I'm going to accomplish something, I'm going to achieve something. And sometimes there are people that are in our way that we need to move out of our way, but more than anything, we, we do life together, right? We're part of that symphony. We're not a soloist. We're part of a greater group, a greater, a greater kingdom, which is God's kingdom. And we can, we can begin to, what happens, associate accomplishment and achievement with fulfillment and think if I could just achieve enough, then I would be loved, Right? If I could list my accomplishments, then someone would want to love me because of how much I could give them. And then so accomplishment and achievement become a mechanism or a process or avenue through which we get love. And then we, if we have that way, then we'll tend to give love on the basis of accomplishment and achievement and reward. Maybe it's not accomplishment or achievement for you. Maybe it's something different. But we've all learned to create a process for ourselves so that we can attempt to fill that void. And I, I really begin to think about what, what is love? I, I begin to think about this question deeply. I've grown up in church all my life. I have. I mean, I was practically born in the pew. I, seriously, I, I don't ever remember not going to church. I, it was my life. It was my family. I come from a rich heritage. But at the same time, I still struggled with this concept of love. And Friday, as I'm, as I'm preparing and, and kind of shoring things up, I begin to think about this question that we've asked in the series, and we already had everything printed up, right? This question of what is love, and, and I begin to think maybe the question is not what is love. Maybe it's not a what. Maybe it's not a feeling, Maybe love is not sex, as culture would define it. Maybe that, that sex is an expression of love, rather than being love itself. Maybe, maybe love is not, not a person that we can get it from, but I think love really is a person, just not a person on this earth. I begin to think the appropriate question is not what is love, but who is love? Who is it? Not just what Paul is talking about here in Corinthians, but who is he talking about? And then I was reminded of a scripture that appears in 1 John chapter 4. This letter written by a man named John was written to the church as well, but it was written after Paul wrote his letter. And this is what he said, verses 7 and 8. John says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. Love comes from God. 
Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is what I love. God is love. Is is what we call in English what? A being verb. Remember that? A being verb. It's not an action word. It's a sense of being. What's that mean? If I say, Josh is a boy, that means that's what I am. That's who I am. So God is love. He, he defines for us that right here, that statement, this definite statement. It's no, there's no question mark after it. There's no comma. There's a period. God is love. That changes everything. That moves it from the realm of what to who. And I think the moment that we move something from what to who is the moment that it becomes alive for us. It becomes real. It becomes active. It's it's breathing. It takes on form. It takes on shape. And it begins to desire a place within our lives. And we said before, we have this desire to know what love is. Not just by definition, but by experience, by, by emotion too. We want to feel it, right? You can say, what does love feel like? Oh, I don't know. It just feels good. Oh, yeah, I think so. You're right. But not everything that feels good is love. But if it feels good, then I'm just going to do whatever feels good, and I'm going to create this greater void in my life. Have you ever pursued what you thought was love, and you got what you thought it was, only to realize you felt more empty than, the, than when you went there? Did you feel like you had a bucket that you wanted to fill, and then everything you tried to put in it kept running out of the bottom? Because we're all pursuing this. It, it's driving us. It's motivating us. Every human being on the face of the planet wants to be love and love. You cannot separate it. If you're here this morning and you say, well, I don't, I don't have that, I don't want it, you're lying. You may not be as expressive and as, and as touchy-feely about it, but that's the part of you that is missing. In Greek, Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there are four different words that appear for love. One is called eros or eros. It's erotic love, the kind of love that was very, very visible and on display in Corinth. There's phileo, which is brotherly love. There's a word that I can't pronounce that means family love. I'm not even going to try. But then there's a word called agape, which I think more, most of us are familiar with. The word agape is used quite a bit throughout the New Testament. It's the word used in John 3, 16, when God says, for, and the Bible says, for God so loved the world. And this word agape is, is a strong, non-sexual affection or love for something. It, it basically means this. It loves because that's what it does. It loves without ever expecting anything in return. It loves before you love it back. It just loves. And it loves without seeking anything. It loves without looking for recompense. It just loves because that's what it is. That's who it is, and that's what it does. Any of you that have children in here, you knew that you loved that child when it was in the mother's womb. But the moment that child broke through into the space of reality, there was something that changed and clicked within the inside of you that this overwhelming flood or well of love began to bubble up, and you're like, I love this person who's never done anything for me, right? 
and they probably will never do anything for you until they grow up. In fact, you will be doing way more for them than they'll be doing for you. That's the truth. Your time, your ability, your sleep, your money, your emotions, your wits, right? You give out. Why? You're being motivated by the love that you have for this child, and you will love that child whether it ever loves you back because you cannot help but do so. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the word that he chooses to use by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then in conjunction with 1 John chapter 4, for God is love, what is that saying? The word that it's used for love there is the same word. So God will love you whether you ever love him back. That God loved you because he created you and whether you ever do anything for him, he will always love you. It doesn't mean it's a free pass to do anything you want and it's a free ticket to eternity. I'm just saying that you're his creation and he loves you. And you never had to do anything to earn it or qualify for it. The only thing you can ever do is receive it. It is the greatest gift. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of the love of God. How do we know that? Know that. 1 John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that, which means for, because, so, he sent his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. The love of God motivated itself, culminated in the greatest thing the world has ever seen, which is Jesus touching foot on this earth, going to the cross, doing what he did. That is the greatest act of love that we could ever experience. Man can make their way back. I said before that we all have a love-shaped size hole in our heart, which is true. Every human being has that void. Billy Graham said it way better than I ever could. Billy Graham said it this way. He said every person on the face of the earth has a God-shaped size hole in their heart that they seek to fill and they seek to um, understand and they seek to just make peace with. We all have a God-shaped size soul in our heart. We can't fill it with anything else. And we've tried. We've tried through people. We've tried through accomplishment. We've tried through, through whatever the case may be. If you can name it, it exists. You've tried it. Only to end up at the same point where you started with less than what you gave. You see, when you encounter a relationship with God and you receive the love that he gives you, he will take some things from you, but he's going to take all the bad stuff from you. He's going to take all the things about you that you don't like. He's going to take all the mistakes, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the just the junk that you have. And if you let him, he'll take it. And it may be painful when he takes it, but in return, he's going to give you more of himself, more of his character, more of his love, his peace, his grace. Basically, you're going to become more of who he created you to be. But when you do it the opposite way and you do things for people simply because you want something in return, when you do things without love, you literally become less of what you are. You're losing yourself in the process in this vain attempt to get from people what only God can give. This, in my opinion, is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I don't want you to stand here and look back up at the hill and look at that temple and see that as love. I want you to look 
to the heavens. I want you to look to God. I want you to look to what I told you about when I spent 18 months with you and when I told you that you're no longer that person of what you're doing, that you have been washed, that you have been sanctified, that you have been made right with God because you said that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's what love is. The song that I tried to sing at the beginning got it wrong, right? It's what we experience on a daily basis. It's God. It's not what, it's who. And when you know who it is, you're not looking for what it is. Because you know that who, if you believe in Jesus, lives inside of you. So look no further than within. You don't have to define your life and your pursuit of love because you'll never find love. Love will always find you. See, the gospel is not about man getting to God. It's always been about God coming to man. God sent Jesus to encounter you and me. He pursues us. Think about that. I think sometimes in church we get it wrong. We talk so much about pursuing God that we forgot that he pursued us. And the only reason we're here today is because he pursued us. He used other people. He used a variety of different ways, but he pursued us. And yes, we do need to follow him, but he's always there. He is the ultimate magnetic person. He's drawing us in by his love and his grace and his mercy. He doesn't just overlook all the bad stuff. He sees it. He loves you anyway. He'll take it. He'll remove it. And you'll keep going forward if you let him. That's, that's the God that we serve. That's what love is. Next week, we're going to talk about verses 4 through 6. The love is, the love is, the love is. I want you to do two things. I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this week. I want you to read it. It'll take you five minutes. Read it. And then when you get to verses 4 through 6, instead of just saying love is, I want you to think God is. God is patient. God is kind. God is all of that. Because he said in his word, I am love. So God is love, love is God, and it is an action, right? God never defines love as a feeling. Never. He never defines it as a sensation. It's always an action. And it's the action ultimately of what he did in his son Jesus. If you could, just as a moment to reflect, if you could bow your heads. I have two questions this morning. Reflect. What the Holy Spirit's saying to you. First question is, if you're here this morning and you recognize that, yes, you do have that God-shaped size hole in your heart and you want it to be filled and you want to encounter Jesus and begin a relationship with him and experience the love that he has for you, if today is the day your pursuit of love stops because you realize the one that's pursuing you, I want you to raise your hand. You say, Josh, why would I raise my hand? Thank you very much. Because you're just acknowledging what God is doing on the inside of you. You're physically responding to the Holy Spirit speaking to the inside. I'll give you one more chance. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Change your eternity. Secondly is this. If you're here this morning, say, you know what? I, I think I'm more like a Corinthian. I've kind of forgot about the love of God. I've been, I realize I'm influenced by culture and society. And I want to I return to that point where it's just I know God is pursuing me and he loves me. If you just want to be reunited, I'm not talking about necessarily rededicating your life, but just reunited with the sense of love that God has for you. I want you to raise your hand. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you right now for those individuals who responded first to say, 
I want this God-shaped size hole in my heart to be filled. And I thank you right now, God, as they responded by faith, the Holy Spirit on the inside of them, that they are being forgiven and set free, that they are a new creation, that they are no longer who they once were, but God, your love has come and your forgiveness has come and you're changing them from the inside out. And that today is the day of salvation and today is the day of the rest of their lives, that from this point forward, they will no longer be the same. Secondly, for every person here this morning that raised a hand, that just want to be reunited with the sense of love that God has for them. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, just that the most beautiful way possible for your love just to descend on us here in this room. God, may we not be a church of a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. May we not be a group of soloists, but may we be part of a beautiful symphony who looks to you as its conductor, that we can turn our eyes upon this city and we can see our city saved, delivered, redeemed, and fulfilled with the love of Jesus Christ. God, you are love. May we never forget that. May we never value the gifts more than we value you. May we not dilute love into just a feeling or a sensation, but always be drawn to you by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you're doing. And we give you all the praise and glory. And everybody said, amen. Can you take an opportunity? Can we celebrate what God's doing? It may seem awkward. Yeah, thank you.